Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Cattle Baron Cigars. Cattle Baron Cigars has a rich, natural, aromatic, classic tobacco flavor. Made with the finest tobacco, perfectly blended for the most pleasant, satisfying, long ash you can buy anywhere. Cattle Baron Cigars has consistently scored an excellent in the 90s on their reviews. For more in-depth information on Cattle Baron Cigars, listen to our Brian Mussard podcast episode and visit cattlebaroncigars.com. Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. today's episode of Brands and Barbed Wire, we continue to bring you ranching from different parts of the country and North America. Today's guest recently received the 125 Heritage Award for 125 years in agriculture in Canada. I'm excited to hear about their heritage, history, and success in the cattle business. I am pleased to introduce you to Trent Hatch, fifth generation owner and operator of Pleasant Dawn Farms, or better known today as Pleasant Dawn Charolais. Welcome to the podcast, Trent, and happy birthday. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. It's a real pleasure here to speak to you on podcasts and, yeah, get to tell people a little bit about myself and the farm. And Why don't we take an opportunity to do a little bit of that? And uh, for, for some of our folks that may not know you or haven't heard of Trent Hatch, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and, and about Canada. Well, sure. Well, We'll start off with my family. I guess you said happy birthday. So it's my 47th birthday today and uh, married to my best friend. Ashley's my wife. I got four kids, a daughter that's seven, Savory, two twin boys, Sefton and Hollis, and a little girl that's almost three, Bristol. Awesome. That's great. So, yeah. Yeah. The twin boys, they, they're the, I'm told that's payback. That's what my old coaches tell me. That's payback. So <laughs> it's payback. I can imagine it. And it's going to get better. I, I bet. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but I do believe in uh, child labor. So to a point, to a point, <laughs> so the, the kids are good for on the farm, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little payback there too, probably. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell us a little bit about the, the environment up there and, and the farm and, and the ranch. and Yeah, I can, uh, well, you said Canada. So I live about 60 miles north of uh, the American-Canadian border, uh, North Dakota. But pretty much straight north of Minot, North Dakota, if anybody knows where that is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's it's cold. It's it's Canada. It's we got a reputation of being cold, and it's cold. It's still cold here right now, actually, but... Uh, yeah, so it makes it really fun and hard with the cattle. It's uh, obviously, I mean, I think 125 years, I just couldn't imagine when my great-great-grandpa came here, you know, and they didn't have, like, disbines or, count, like, er, to feed. They only had, really, a few cows. There was always a milk cow. And mm-hmm. how they started off with, like, sheep and and just little stuff like that. Like, in Canada, we feed our cattle for at least seven months out of the year. So that's a big big expense and a big, uh, yeah, it's just something you always have to work around. But one thing about cold weather, though, cattle do like to eat, you know, mm-hmm. the colder it is kind of like us, 
yeah. <laughs> when it's cold out, we eat more. So I find in our environment, we can get away with feeding cows a little bit different stuff. Basically, yeah, as long as it's got some protein in it, they can uh, they can survive pretty good. And just the colder it gets, like if we have uh, this last winter here, we had some pretty cold days. And if it would go from like minus 20 to minus 30, that's Celsius. I don't know exactly what that is. But for 70 cows, you're eating about an extra bale a day just from that cold weather. So they yeah. can they can stay warm, but they're just their appetite goes up and then it's, yeah, their energy level needs to go up. So that's, yeah, I don't even know talking to some feedlot guys, that's kind of like minus five is probably about prime, like just below five degrees below freezing for us. Mm-hmm. That way the cows can, you know, eat good and still not put too much energy in just trying to stay warm. So. All right. So minus 20 and minus 30, it doesn't matter whether it's, it's Celsius or Fahrenheit. <laughs> no, that's still cold. pretty, that's still pretty cold, isn't it? I know, oh, uh, I know one time when I was up in that country, I, 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 I'll never forget, like you guys, you, you park your trucks and you leave them running. I mean, you don't oh, even turn sure. them off when yeah. it's that cold, right? No, it's, oh man, if you, uh, if you do, you kind of just kind of look at somebody and be like, Really, for 50 cents of fuel, you're going to shut off your truck or a dollar? Yeah, no, it's not worth it. Then if it does get cold, you can't get a start. And yeah, actually, minus 37 is what I had, 38 this year. Like, we get, it's cold. But as long as you keep the cows out of the wind, they're fine. And on our ranch, we start calving in January. Yeah, so obviously, you have to have barns for that. And uh, it's all enclosed. But then you get enough of a pack in there with straw and manure it actually produces enough heat that doesn't even freeze on the bottom. Like just, yeah. So it's pretty cool really how mother nature like has it. So you can, the ground gives off the heat and then with a pack there, it, uh, cows will calve. Now we just watch them on video cameras and it's still a lot. It's still a lot of work. Obviously you don't want to leave your nice warm house and go to minus 30 outside and (laughs) go check cows. Yeah. Two (laughs) o'clock in the morning. It's not, uh, not fun, but it's worth it if you if you enjoy it. Everybody up here, if you have cattle, it's because you actually really enjoy cattle. There's nobody that has cattle up here just for hobbies anymore or anything like that. It's well, I just shouldn't say it. There are still guys for hobbies, but they enjoy it, right? It's <laughs> so so you said 125 years. I mean, obviously, that 125 years ago we didn't have cameras in the calving barns, right? So what brought your family to 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 that part of Canada, and and how did you guys get started? Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that's 125 years is a long time. Yeah, it is. Well, I'll, uh, I'll go back a little bit, do a quick, quick run for you. My great, great grandfather is Hugh Hatch. He was born December 3rd in 1805, Devonshire, England. He came to Montreal, Canada in 1840. And, uh, yeah, that would have been a long boat rush trip, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would have been. And he was, let's see, uh, 1805 to, to 1840, 35 years old. Is he 35 yeah. years old? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep, young enough wanted to change your life. And over in England, back then, it was, from what I'm always told, is if you could own land, it was almost like a, a royalty thing because only to own land was pretty special. It was, so they wanted to come over to Canada. I think after tea party and that down in the States, I think when they, they thought, maybe, you know what, Canada, maybe because they're English, right? Maybe, maybe we'll go to Canada, not the States. Because right. I don't know other reasons why they wouldn't want to go where it's warm. But. <laughs> but yeah i don't know so anyways yeah he got came to montreal in 1840 they ran a construction company they were very successful at that then after a while his son henry he decided to come to manitoba to get more land 
yeah, so he came to Manitoba in 1882 with his whole family. And then in 1897, my great-grandfather, William Livingston Hatch, he established our homestead. It's just a couple miles from where originally in 1882 where they started up. And I just, yeah, ox trails is really what they're called. Right. Out here in 1882. Yeah, it was mostly about acquiring land even then, right? It was, it was you know, if we can get... If we can get land, we can potentially build a life for ourselves and 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 build something from that, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's yeah, something for your family. So, yeah, heritage. I'm very obviously. I'm very happy they did it. <laughs> I still remember hearing stories about like back then. It was just make sure you always had enough firewood, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, especially if it gets that cold. And back in the 1800s, I I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know, we don't. Uh, we probably take a lot of that for granted today, don't we? Oh, absolutely. Especially even last weekend here, we had a snowstorm and we uh, our power went out for a while. And yeah, you know, I just couldn't. We're so dependent on electricity on the farm. Like we need our water bowls for freezing up. If the cows don't have water, like it's a big, big challenge keep for your watering systems. But I mean, obviously we're set up for it now, but yeah, you got to have electricity, you know, keep everything going. So. Yep. So tell us about, uh, what'd you say your, your grandfather in, in the late 1800s? That was my great, great grandfather. He, in 1882. Okay. And then my grandfather, he was born in 1914 and, and, uh, it's the original homestead where I'm on now when they started up in 1897. That's why I got the 125 years. And, uh, yeah, speak a little bit more about my my grandpa because i knew him well i didn't know my great great grandpa obviously but uh yeah so 1914 then we got into grandpa got into it was more sheep than that back then and uh he was a real peace people person he loved to show his loved to show his animals like uh back then he would load up on a train and go to shows and toronto royal was a canada's biggest show back then was the toronto royal and uh yeah, Grandpa did very, very well in the showing. He had the he had the the nick for all that stuff. He uh, won Grand Champion Suffolk Sheet for four out of five years, and the one year he didn't win is because he didn't didn't go there. He was at home working. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then in the nineteen fifties, he started getting more into cattle. Started to get a little bit better of equipment too to be able to feed cattle, because a lot of it was always done by a fork, like you had to feeding so long was always a fork it off a rack i always remember hearing dad talk like just a lot of physical labor hey trent in in that early 1900s uh your grandfather and the sheep business i mean how how big would the ranch have been then and how many sheep you know just think about you know what it takes to sort of sustain a family and and the income and and those types of things i mean in, in that time frame i mean how many how many sheep would he have had and i assume to get to toronto at the time you had to jump on a train Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go on a train. We weren't necessarily like huge. Like I said, we came out here to get land, but it was, it was always tough to make a living. Right. I don't know exactly in the early 1900s, how many sheep grandpa had. I know he had about 50 to a hundred. And then I know when we got up later on in the seventies, we had up to 500 sheep and then sheep just wasn't much money. Even though in Canada now, actually we import twice as much. We import all half of lamb that's eaten is all imported in Canada. So, I mean, there should be a market there, but it's just, I think because we are feeding, you know, seven months, there's so much input into it that it's, 
it's hard, but yeah, I remember dad getting the horses back him telling me that when grandpa had come off the train, there was a snowstorm and he had to get the horses all. Yeah. And take the team of horses into town and get to get grandpa, right. It was how they did it back then. Obviously they had a will. Right. And, um, are there some other stories that, that you can remember your, your dad or your grandfather having for the, in those days? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to sit around the coffee shop quite, or coffee table quite a bit there. And, you know, other cattle guy would come and I'd just be the little boy listening. Right. And you're all, you're all ears when you're, when you're a little kid, you're listening to people that you really respect and look up to. And yeah, I remember grandpa at the show there. He was, was really good at showing and judging. Like he had a pretty good reputation for that. Like I said, he was, uh, well, in 1954, he bought some real good shorthorn cows from a longtime breeder, Walter Larson of North Dakota, got into the, showing the shorthorn cattle. And by 1972, 25% of all shorthorn cattle in Canada had Pleasant Dawn breeding in it. Yeah. So he went from, uh, he went from Suffolk sheeps and, and Suffolk sheep and, and his success there and moved that into shorthorn. So he could... From a from a judge and livestock analyst type um, person, he it didn't matter if it was sheep or cattle. He sort of had the eye for him, I, I assume. Definitely, yeah. And that, and his grandfather, I remember people talking about that was with, with horses, right? Because so much of the farm work was done on horses. When it came to livestock or animals, he, seed stock is definitely uh, was one of his giftings. So he's got short horns and got started in the short horn business and. In 54, he, he bought, in 1950, he bought some shorthorn females. And in 54, he bought a real good bull from uh, Walter Larson of North Dakota. And he stemmed a lot of that from three different bulls he bought from this, from Walter. And then he did a little bit of line breeding, a little bit every now and then. You get about, you know, three generations and he'll throw back in that real good bull. And kind of keep that. It's kind of funny. I was at Agribition here a couple of years ago. And uh, people are asking, they're, they're still showing some shorthorns there. And the guy said, you know that Pleasant Dawn? I was like, ah, okay. He goes, yeah, Pleasant Dawn. They wanted this Pleasant Dawn breeding. I was like, what was that? And he goes, well, it was this Mark bull. He still had semen on it. I still actually have people phone me up every now and then, like some in Canada or the States. And they want to know if they, if I had any semen that grandpa had from the seventies, like, uh, and this one boy had Pleasant Dawn Mark. He was showing on the Canadian circuit. In Toronto Royal. And that was a big one back then. And then Agribition. And uh, he went undefeated on that. But And then just last year, or a couple of years, no, about four years ago, at Agribition, another guy won with Pleasant Dawn breeding still. is a direct son off of Pleasant Dawn Bull. So, yeah, Grandpa, he he got into the shorthorns and he loved it though. Like he, yeah, he just really loved his cattle. Stuff like that. So, <laughs> Yeah, so he tell us some more more about the undefeated bull. He he he. I mean, how many shows or do you know? I mean, an undefeated bull in the show circuit. I know he went to Agribition. I know he was at Toronto Royal. Those are the two big ones. I don't know exactly all the other little places he went to, but and it was at a time when he. I remember people telling stories like, after a while, when you get winning, people don't want to see you win. <laughs> and uh, but the bull was. They just say like the bull was that good. Like. It was just when he walked in, he was that good of a bull. So I wish I, I yeah, I wish I would have liked to see him myself, but. Right. But he had the muscling where shorthorns didn't eventually, you know, in the seventies and that eighty, well, eighties, they went a little too tall and, and lanky and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, he also developed a pretty good reputation for, uh, judging cattle. 
like we're talking about. And he judged many shows in North America. Three of his highlights were he judged the, now I might not say this right, but the Palmero Shorthorn show in 1978 at Benes Aries, Argentina. That was one of his highlights. And then he judged the World Shorthorn Congress held in Calgary in 1980 at the Stampede. And he judged another show at Vancouver, the PNE Shorthorn Show. And he, I just remember people always saying how he was really well respected because he judged the animals, not the halter or person holding it, or he wouldn't want to. He always judged the animal. That was basically what it boiled down to. And they kind of liked watching him because he was a judge that wouldn't sit around, wander around, like trying to make it a show. He knew what he wanted. He was quick. And he said, like, he just, he was quick, knew what he wanted. I remember watching him showing Brandon, like, our provincial fairs and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I was, I was always. You were always a fan of your grandfather because you get to watch him, you know, be a judge and some of those things. I can imagine as a kid that had had to obviously make an impression on you and help drive the, probably the interest you have today. Oh, it did. Yeah. No, I, yeah, my grandpa and grandma, like I, I grew up as a kid just across the road from my grandma and grandpa. So, I mean, we were always, we were always over there getting spoiled. So. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So how did it transition in from your, your grandfather to maybe your dad and, and tell us about that. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, what I remember is, is dad always had to do some work while grandpa was at the show. <laughs> so, and, uh, so dad, he didn't, he didn't pick up the show bug. Grandpa had it, but dad, he just, he didn't like the politics and he didn't, or not, nothing really seemed to phase grandpa that way. Like, you know, if something got too political and whatever, that was just the way it was, but it just seemed like, and dad wasn't much for spending a week away from home showing somewhere, you know, at Agribition or Toronto Royal. He would go there, but he just didn't have, he still had the eye and, and, uh, but I just, yeah, he just didn't have the same bug probably as what my grandpa had for, for wanting to do the show stuff. But, uh, and I kind of, I'm glad because I got to see, both sides like i've shown myself too and and there's times where you're like yeah but that's why i laughed here at dad actually a few years ago because i'm out showing and, and he's at home doing all the work again still so <laughs> <laughs> that's good so your, your dad was more into the production side of things and and the cows at work and working for for the ranchers and work for the other guys and and not necessarily the ones that win the show rings yeah dad he definitely yeah had a gift for that i mean uh he knew also had enough intuition to know that shorthorns weren't the future breed when grandpa was doing very well in the show and stuff like that dad he went off he in 78 he got his first charlet bull and uh used them on his commercial cows go to these test stations and stuff like that but then he kept on using some charlet and actually we and that couldn't have been easy i mean just looking from the outside i was a little boy then obviously i was three years old i wouldn't know it in 78 but uh yeah, to switch over to st- slowly start bringing another breed, but he still knew that where the future was because the future just wasn't in in the shorthorn cattle in Canada. How did your grandfather react to that when he started bringing in some of the, a different breed? Do you remember? Yeah, he was good. That's why I know Grandpa. He was always really patient, gentleman, and you know he just he still liked the fact of how Dad liked cattle and new cattle, and it was just it was also interesting for him because then you can look at other breeds and see what their potential are too and stuff like that. But at that time he was getting at the age where he didn't want to start a new breed. He was, he was pretty established there. So he was glad to let dad just take over the Charlotte part and, and, and do that. So, and that was no easy thing. I remember like 
we sold at least two thirds of every Charlie animal we bought because of either temperament, uh, feet, or no milk and calving problems with Charlie. So that was one thing that dad, and then also I later on, is we really wanted to focus on the negative traits up here for Charlays. So we bought some good Cavanese bulls, and that was also trial and error. It's really good, actually, yeah, how dad did all that. And I was still always just a little boy listening. Right. So your dad uh, is growing the Charlay thing and he sort of grew that and, and grew into a purebred Charlay operation that focused on, you know, some of those performance traits like modest birth weight and, and growth and, and some of those things. And as you grew up and saw that, and when did you kind of feel like that's something you wanted to continue to do as well? Yeah. I, I always knew that I, I wanted the cattle and I just, yeah, I had the bug too. I remember you're just imagining in your head, you know, when you see that, that cow's calf and then you're like, well, that calf, you watch it grow and you see his traits, how it grows. And you kind of imagine your head was going to bring it to this cow, what that calf's going to be. And you try to imagine, I don't know how exactly to explain it, but I'm sure every purebred, every guy who breeds their animals does the same thing. But I remember as a little kid, you, you're imagining in your head what, what these traits are and what the animal's going to look out, what look like. And sometimes you're happy, you know, it turns out and sometimes you're disappointed and they don't, but that's when you keep on trying, you know, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. We sold, we sold, uh, bulls off the farm for years. We had a commercial herd. Like I was saying, we used some different breeds and, uh, man, I remember we had some, I shouldn't cut down some other breeds with some negative points. We had some limos. We had some, with some good commercial cows. We bought a limo bull and he wasn't that, he, his, himself his temperament was fine but man he had some crazy calves like dad always tells a story about when they're loading up calves and and my grandpa was wondering how how's there still room in that trailer and dad's like well let's keep bringing them there's stuff so far in the front neck of the trailer you have to jump up those things were just sneaky like so we, we got we didn't use limousines anymore <laughs> and uh yeah still like the shorthorn cow for her maternal and we had some Semitol cross and we always would we'd use a Charlotte bull on them. And man, we'd, we'd pound the scale down the fall. Like that's all we made our money off of was cattle, just pure beef. We don't have any grain. They had to weigh down the scale, the scale in the fall. And, and, uh, we found Charlotte was definitely the breed in Canada. I mean, what are the primary breeds up there now? And, and even then it seems to be that there's a little more of a, of a continental influence up there where, you know, the United States obviously is largely Angus based, but, uh, is the breed makeup different and, and how about the type of cattle? A little bit different. Yeah. We there's still a large Angus is, especially in the nineties, nineties or eighties, nineties really took off the Angus thing. A lot of Semitol, a lot of Semitol cattle. They tried some other different breeds for a while. They're, you know, exotics from Europe, but basically they're still right now. I'd say black Angus is number one, red Angus, but Semitol and Charlay. Charlay are coming up more all the time now. They really like the Charlay and the feedlots. You got guys wanting to buy the Charlay wave is really making it good up here because as an order buyer, if you get a smaller calf in the fall, well, you know, if it's Charlay, you can put that in the feedlot. They can have it finished out come springtime. Where if it's a small calf at a straight Angus, straight uh, Shorthorn or straight another breed, they might have to background that or Hereford especially. They'll have to background that calf. It's not going to get, they're not going to be at a finished weight in the spring. So at the Charlay, they know that they can 
it gives a feedlot industry such a dynamic way of, of, of playing the game of making your most profit on your animal. So that's one thing is for the weight that way they know. And for a Charlie heifer, they can just, man, they'll feed out as good as a, a straight black steer. The Charlie cross heifers, they say like, it's, it, it's really good up here for, for that. Like Charlie's and it's really helpful for bull sales and stuff like that. I mean, there was obviously tough times, but also that one order buyer in Ontario there, he was saying like, if it's just straight Angus, they love it. I mean, they, they fatten up nice, but then they just get fat. And they're once they're finished at the 14 months, either finished then or 13, 14 months or 16, they're finished, but then they just get fat and they just put too much waste on. But if it's a Charlie influence on an Angus, the Charlie influence on anything, they can keep on feeding that. It's going to keep putting on the lean meat yield. It's going to keep marbling. They can feed that for another month or two. Like there's no, there's no end game right with that. Where, so if you have a bunch of feeder calves, you got to take off, get shipped away. You got that extra playroom of a month or two or, or whatever, right? It's, it's a pretty good advantage. Like it's, it's becoming a no brainer up here now. Like if you're feeding out cattle, you want Charlotte. Yeah. So. Tell us about when, you know, your, your, your dad's got Charlie cattle building the purebred herd and, and sort of take us through how that time frame transitions to you. And, and I, I think you said fifth generation, 125 years. Yeah. Well, dad and I, like where we used to sell off the farm and, uh, then we went to three different sales. Used to be a place called Douglas test station. And it was at a time when there was just a lot of a lot of more smaller ranchers and uh, big ranchers too, but a lot more smaller back then. So a lot of guys have put in, you know, 10 or 15 bulls, 20 bulls. And there, there was a lot ahead at this test station. It was a pretty good test station. So that was kind of a trial run for your performance. It was just basically strictly performance run though. 2001, dad had the high gaining bull of all breeds there. Also they were, we, we put in uh, bulls that could still calve to cows. Problem is that place got a reputation of, people putting in these huge birth weight animals, they would they'd perform good, but they wouldn't calve good. Right. So, and that's on all breeds, all exotic breeds, straight, like whatever. And then 2002, I was actually kind of blessed to, so two years in a row, Pleasant Dawn got the highest gaining bull over all breeds at this. And that was the most prestigious uh, performance-based program was Douglas test station. Then after that, we, uh, we started up our own sale. Yeah, so we had went to three different sales before that. We'd have a uh, one sale at Cirrus Valley, it's called. Another one's called Rancher's Choice, and then the Douglas Test Station. So Dad and I were running around cra- like crazy, right? So it's just too much, too much work. And then one problem is too, a guy would ask you, well, what place is your best bulls at? You know, obviously Douglas Test Station had more of our performance based bulls, but uh, yeah, it just got to be a harder. Just so then we started up our own sale. And, uh, yeah, just funny how, you know, doors get opened up that way with that. And they wouldn't let this one place wouldn't let me in, I think. And, uh, this one sale, they wouldn't let me become a guest consigner where they'd let everybody else, but they wouldn't let me in. So then I was like, ah, we'll just, we'll have our own sale then. So, so we did, we started up our own sale for our first year. It went pretty good. Second year BSE happened. And that was for us in Canada, that was devastating because Literally in 24 hours, our mark, our market was zero. It just totally, it didn't matter if you had a cow. I remember I took out loans when I was younger than to buy cattle and stuff like that. And it was just, that was not good. It was second year came around and uh, BSE was still on. I remember one guy, or nobody expected us to keep on having a sale because 
all the attitude was just so negative and cattle weren't worth anything. And, uh, but I just let me grow my cow herd because you couldn't sell any older cows, but you could sell 700, you still still sell steers and that the year later. So we, uh, we went through the sale and honestly, it's been uh, just a real blessing that bull sale because only one year is kind of average. The rest have all been just really bonuses. So that obviously, well, this is our 20th annual sale. So I guess that was 27 at the time, but yeah, it kept me primed up. Had some tough years, like right after school, I was, I was kind of more athletic and I wanted to do more stuff like that, but I always stayed home on the farm and calved out cows every winter. And, and, uh, yeah, I guess it's in my blood now. When you say you were athletic, what sports did you play? Badminton. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you look like a badminton kind of guy. <laughs> no, I, I loved hockey. I mean, I grew up, that didn't get catch a lot of games unless they're at home. But, uh, yeah, being from Canada, you basically got to play hockey. But my first love actually was, was football when I got to high school. We don't start football when we're younger, but I just love contact. I mean, you can tackle a steer. You can take down something like that right in the angles. It's pretty easy to tackle somebody if you can tackle a steer. <laughs> That's what I always tell people, you know, what, what, what made me good at football was you understand leverage. You know, you can – you can absolutely, if you got to move a, a cow or a steer or get something off your foot or whatever that is, totally. you, yeah. you, can, you no. <laughs> understand leverage pretty easy. And, and when you're, when you're going up against another guy that's 250 or 300 pounds and he doesn't understand leverage, you can still get it over on him. Can't you? Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what they call the farm boy strength. They just no leverage. <laughs> yeah. Cause I wasn't the biggest guy for sure. No, but, uh, <laughs> definitely was. <laughs> Definitely was skinnier back then and more leaner. <laughs> <laughs> but but you were tough. I don't whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. So you you opted for a life of farming and ranching instead of professional sports. <laughs> I don't think I would have went far anyway. <laughs> professional sports. <laughs> and so uh, so you come back to the come back to the ranch, the cave cows in in negative thirty degree uh, Celsius temperatures instead of instead of sports stardom so tell us about tell us about that and then and then how did it sort of transition from your dad to you yeah well obviously i had no future in, in sports but uh yeah the cattle part they just there's always just business 101 for me better make more money than you spend and uh feeding cattle for this long you better make sure you have a product that uh, your customer wants and makes your customer money and that was just one thing i remember always trying to focus on is as long as they're making money off your product and uh, doing good that way, they're going to keep coming back and buying. And sure, they'll go, you know, other places. And then they'll then they'll come back. But you can't keep everybody happy, obviously. But yeah, I just really we focused, you know, on EPDs and genomics. Now we use some pretty cool stuff with genomics, and I'm real real believer in trying to do the best you can. And I guess used to say, know what you're good at and be good at what you do. To know what you're good at and be good at what you do. And you've obviously had some success in the Charlet deal and put some, put some bulls recently in studs and some of those things and had some success. You said you've only had really one bad year selling bulls. Obviously that's uh, the customer support and customer base you built, uh, keeps coming back. So, so where's, where's Pleasant Don today and, and where do you kind of see yourself going? And there's, you talked about genomics. Are there some things that uh, that you look at as important in selecting cattle in the future? And it seems like you know you're sort of uh, pretty innovative for for that area and and what you're looking for. Um, tell us a little bit about that. 
taught you quite a bit above my head, the genomics part, but I really find it interesting. And I'm a believer in, and, uh, how the blood carries, you know, all those traits. And so I do use it when an animal gets DNA tested. We were one of the first people in Canada to start doing genomics. Probably one of the first people in Canada that really made sure we had good EPDs and, or try to keep up our EPDs. I remember going to association meetings and some people are just so against EPDs and stuff like that. But I, I found generally, you know, especially when they're using multiple herds, how if that bull has a negative low birth weight EPD, generally use him long enough. And he's pretty true to his numbers, you know, after once he's been used in multiple herds. So I've really, I really see our herds still try to use the EPDs. I'm, not all the time. I mean, sometimes there's something that, you know, will fly under and then uh, use them for a couple of years. Then you'll bring those EPDs up and, and stuff like that. And the genomic part, I think, is going to be huge just for, you know, feeding costs of animals up here. We're seven months out of the year, we're doing it. Even for feedlots, it doesn't matter where you are all around the world, where you're, you're feeding out, finishing cattle. It's going to be a pretty important trait here to uh, have everything penciled right out to the penny to how much, anim- how much input you're putting in that animal. How much money they're making off it and because uh, it boils down to yeah it does have to taste good and be good but those feedlot they have to make money if they don't make money it's just you know and and yeah and food production and the way it's going i think it's just a huge future there i see you know dairy does it with their milk cows they got that right down to the penny chicken farms up here swine up here you get a lot of chicken you know the chicken there's no small no small barns anymore. Everything's just big, especially down there. But uh, all your swine, pig, it's all big. That's right down to the penny, too, how they got everything penciled out. And I think genomics are going to play a great part of that in the future once they start. I think in the dairy business, they're a few years, well, like probably a few decades ahead of us, actually, on a lot of that stuff. And, and once it does kick off, I think it's going to really take off and people will be jumping on the bus. Yeah, and so I think... Um... You you definitely want to be uh, an innovator and, and a leader in that in that group when that when it does start to take off, don't you? I mean, you you kind of have positioned yourself to to be that uh, that type of operation and 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 ranch to be in position when things like that do take off and you know, how you see the future and and selection um, of your cattle. Because if you aren't if you aren't really at the beginning with the cattle, it takes a you know we're not like pigs and chickens. I can change so quick if you're behind in one year now while you're actually like five years behind like it's cattle industry is a little bit just not quite as easy to catch up you know it's buy some pretty good bulls this year hopefully you know (laughs) you might know a couple of them (laughs) but uh yeah i mean i'm not going to really tell until like three years down the road and that's another part where genomics is going to help improve the accuracy and all that stuff too it's really really good that way yep that's right so so Trent, as we sort of close up, um, you know, tell us, tell our listeners, you know, how they can find out more information about, uh, Pleasant Don Charlet and, and about the ranch and, and some of those things. Yeah. You can find out more information on our ranch on Facebook and, uh, or our website, pleasantdonfarms.com. And yeah, feel free to phone and look up and, and at any, any time you want. It's always a pleasure talking to people and, and really this game's all about learning too, isn't it? It's always learning every day. So it is, it's always learning. And, uh, 
and you have an annual bull sale win? Third Saturday in March every year. Mm -hmm. And you're 20 years into that, is that what you said? Yeah, 20 years now. So, Trent, it's really been a pleasure uh, learning about you, learning about, you know, ranching in, in Canada. Some of our listeners um, have never experienced that. So that's really interesting to learn and about your history and, and your cattle. So really appreciate your time and, and appreciate your time this evening. Uh, hope uh, everything goes well. And again, happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Trent. For our producer, Carlos Cheraboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast is sponsored by JMAR Genetics. For semen on our newest herd sires, JMAR Jehovah 8M11 and JMAR Jubal 5P01, please contact Jim Johnson at 434-546-2341 or visit jmargenetics.com.